Welcome to another edition of the Zeitcast, y'all. This is Jonathan Martin. And, you know, I've been thinking, so many of us are on lockdown right now. And anybody who knows me well knows that in a quirky, kind of neurotic, obsessive fashion, that I am endlessly making lists. Lists about, list of books, list of films that I love, certain kinds and genres of films and genres within genres and performances within those genres. It's very nerdy and out of control, and not many people see these. These are mostly just for my own kind of peculiar uh, pleasure or something. So, um, but I love to do that. And I've been thinking a lot lately, especially with things being what they are, and uh, so many of us spending a lot more time at home. Definitely going to be a lot more engagement with film in the coming weeks, and even some of the guests I'm excited about intersecting with film and TV. We've got some cool things that we're working on. But I also know that right now, it's, I mean, it really is an especially great time to read. And um, my friend Jason Smith, who is on staff at OKC First Church of the Nazarene here, texted me a few weeks ago and asked me a question I've never been asked before. Uh, and I'm, which inspired me to generate a list that I've never generated before. He asked me, what were the 10 books that have been most influential to me? And I love that question, most influential. Not best, that'd be a different list. Not favorite, that'd be a different list. But most influential. Like, what are those books that have really most shaped my theology, my philosophy? What are those books that are like embedded in you that are like an app on your phone that are always just kind of always running in the background? I love that question. So, of course, I thought about it for days. And even after I sent him a list, I have endlessly tweaked and edited that list because, you know, again, I'm neurotic about these things and I need to get it right. But it crossed my mind. I thought maybe it actually could be fun to reflect on those books. And maybe while uh, so many of you are quarantined, it could be a, a a good time to explore some of those books. So I wanted to talk about the 10 books that have most influenced me, my most, my 10 most influential books, making this disclaimer out of the gate. And you got to give me a minute here. So the hardest thing for me about this list by far, trying to narrow down to 10 influential books. I mean, the omissions were painful. Like some of them feel like almost physically painful. Like it's wrong to leave some of these writers and thinkers out. So I, I would not be able to give you the 10 if you didn't let me give you the honorable mentions first, at least a few of the ones that are especially hard to, to, to leave off. I mean, I can tell you one of the, the top ones for sure would be N.T. Wright, the Anglican theologian, been tremendously influential for me. I think that, and this was an issue actually for a couple of these thinkers that didn't quite have a book on my final top 10 list. Wright is so prolific, and I've read a lot of his work. I mean, a lot of it's more academic, Some's a little more popular. Some's kind of in the main, in, in, in the middle there somewhere. But um, because he's so prolific, it's like, and over time, maybe these some of these merge together. But it's, it was hard to like narrow down to one that I would say, here's my really influential right book. I can tell you in general that the thing I feel like N.T. Wright most gave me at a time when I, I wasn't getting this anywhere else and didn't have this language anywhere else or this vision was a sense of the grandness of the scope of the Christian story, the vastness of it, the bigness of it, the narrative arc of it. That's what Wright gave me and uh, continues to give me. I still feel like that uh, 
Uh, There's so much right in me in that way. If you've not read N.T. Wright before, so many great books to read. I'd probably say to start with Simply Christian, which I think in terms of kind of a more fundamental, elemental expression of the faith as I would understand it now, I don't think you get better than Simply Christian. I know it's been compared to C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I personally like it better than Mere Christianity. It may seem sacrilegious to some of you, but it's just, it's a wonderful book. Um, So I would say that. And uh, right up there as well, uh, his eschatology, his theology of the end, I'd say Surprised by Hope, really, really important book for me, and that'd be a great place to to start. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to not have any right on the final list. Super hard too, the Japanese Catholic novelist Shusaku Endo. Oh, a couple years ago, I went on this kick, and it's one of my favorite reading binges ever, where I just decided I was going to read all the novels of Indo. And, you know, at some point, I probably need to do a separate list just of novels, but even thinking about influential books, um, Indo is one of those writers where there's such robust theology and philosophy going on on every page of every novel. And there are through lines kind of in all of Endo's novels. I feel like you you always have this way that he's trying to work out the tensions between his Japanese identity and his Christian identity, uh, the, the the complexity of that, uh, the the ways in which sort of the the Western character of Christianity does that conflict with sort of the the the, the his own kind of Eastern roots. So he plays with those themes a lot. The novel that he's most known for, and a lot of you may have even read this in school, is called Silence. Martin Scorsese uh, did an excellent adaptation of that a couple years ago. I love the film, and it's different in the book, but it's great for different reasons. Um, That's the one people most know, but it's not my favorite by far. Uh, He has a novel called Deep River that I just find to be exquisite. It's a beautiful book, and while there's some complex themes, it's also really accessible. I think anybody would enjoy it. So uh, if, you, if you're looking for an Indo recommendation, Deep River is so, so good. Probably my second favorite, which is not quite as known, would is a, a book of his called Scandal, another novel I I really love. But all to say, Indo is, is his shadow over my life is, is enormous. So um, difficult to not have him on the list. Also painful that I don't have a James Cone book in, in the top 10. Those were hard to whittle down though too. Uh, James Cone... Um, I'd say probably The Cross and the Lynching Tree, that, and uh, God of the Oppressed would, would be the two, I would say, to start. But I, I just could not imagine my life, could not imagine my own theology without James Cone. Um, I mean, it's just essential reading. And I think the ways in which he transposes Black experience uh, onto the text in a way that I think is like so fake. I mean, he's a, he's a revolutionary. He's a revolutionary thinker. And I think once you start to see scripture and the Jesus story through the lens of Cone and see the cross in particular through the lens of James Cone, I mean, there's just there's just no going back. And uh, definitely those his his fingerprints also so all over my my life and my theology. Um, There were a couple that were, you know, of, of books that were really tempting to put on the top 10, but I feel like might just be a little bit too recent to call them among my most influential books. I can imagine them landing there though. Like um, some of you heard the Zeitcast I did a couple weeks, uh, a couple months ago rather, 
with our friend Padraig Otuma. His book in the shelter, Finding a Home in the World, absolutely could land on this list. What a gorgeous book. And of course, uh, Padraig's a poet, uh, has such a big open soul, and the book is so beautifully written. That Christian Wyman's My Bright Abyss, same category, uh, books that I could easily see with just given a little more time landing on my uh, on the top 10. But definitely the most painful omission, I have to say. Um, some of you know Stanley Harwas, who taught at Duke for many years, has just been enormously, enormously influential in my life in every way. I mean, I just, uh, gracious. Harwas, there's, in fact, in addition to wanting to have him on the Zeitcast before long, um, I, I feel like at some point I need to do a whole podcast just of Harwas stories because Harwas is almost like, he's almost like a, a folk hero and there really are just amazing stories. I have amazing stories for my own life. Uh, when I started at Duke, I was so intimidated by him. I, 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 <laughs> I couldn't have imagined having any kind of relationship. But as it, as it goes, you know, um, once you get to know him, while he has this pirate-like kind of reputation and it's sort of bombastic and has all these wonderfully incendiary quotes people know him for, when you get to know him, he's so tender and has this almost grandfatherly way, like with his students. And I mean, I just I just can't think of a, a kind of a, a segment of my thought that has not somehow been shaped, challenged, altered somehow by Stanley Hauerwas. The thing that's true, and here I'm wanting to like delve into some of my great Hauerwas stories, but I'm going to have just enough discipline and to, to try to save that for another time. So I can get to the actual books of the list because I know you're like, okay, okay, get on with it, right? Uh, but I, I will say this. The reason it's hard to kind of get down to one Howard Ross book is that Howard Ross's main way of theological discourse is essay. And he is, I would say, far and away the great theological essayist of our time. Uh, I mean, he's just brilliant at it, but because his primary form is essays and therefore his books are mostly collections of essays. I mean, I've read almost all of them. I love almost all of them. Uh, but the fact that they're collections of essays just makes it hard to kind of say, here's one book. I would say the, the best starting place, uh, for me by far would be a compilation called the Hauerwas Reader. I love it because it's kind of a best of from Hauerwas's whole career. So you get a sense of um, like kind of all the major contours of his theology, of his life. There's, yeah, I, I think it's a great place to go. His, his memoir, Hannah's Child, is beautifully written if you want to kind of get a sense of his story and context and where he comes from. But Hauerwas Reader uh, is probably where I'd go there. It's just still like as much as I love all the essays, kind of hard to narrow it down to say, here's here's one Hauerwas book that has influenced me. So all of that said, I don't even know how much time I've, I, I've taken talking about honorable mentions, but this is my podcast. I can talk as long as I want to. You can always pause, stop, fast forward, start over, whatever you want to do. But without further ado, here we go. The top 10 most influential books I have read. Man, the running order too was also tough, but I'm going to give it a go. Number 10, a book called The Preacher King, Martin Luther King Jr. and The Word That Moved America by Richard Lisher. I love this book for a number of reasons. Um, 
I've loved Martin Luther King my whole life. I mean, I guess everybody loves Dr. King, but like in a, in kind of a special way. I joke about how I won second place in the city for a in a Martin Luther King poetry contest in the seventh grade. I mean, it was like even then I was so fascinated by Dr. King, by his life, by his ideas. But the and I've read so many books about King. There are many wonderful biographies. There are. Uh, certainly better biographies in the sense of like, if you want to get a sense of King, the man and his story. But the reason I love this book so much is that I do love preaching and I love the art of preaching. And I think preaching matters. I think words matter. I think language matters. Even that subtitle, Martin Luther King Jr. and the word that moved America. I think there is a word that can move an entire people. And not only am I a student of King, I'm a student of preaching. I'm a student of rhetoric. And the preacher king in that way is just, was just so brilliant for me. Just a whole book that's just a deep dive into King's preaching. Um, what kind of goes into the unique cocktail of his preaching? What makes it what it is? His own, the roots, the influences. Like I, I, I go back to this book over and over because for all the other things I do, I, I guess I am still a preacher at heart. And the preaching of Dr. King in particular is uh, is one of those things that always running in the background. So I think the way that that Lisher kind of delves into the art of King's preaching has been unforgettable for me. And I think it's a helpful book for preachers or for people who love preaching. But anybody who has any interest in King at all, this is really a great and I think underrated book. So Preacher King, my number 10, Richard Lisher, wonderful, wonderful book. Number nine. Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy, and the Triumph of Spectacle by Chris Hedges. There is literally not a week of my life now when I don't reference this book in some form or fashion. It came out, I think, I want to say in 2006. Hedges was a reporter for the New York Times who lost his job in 2003 for speaking out against the Iraq War. Uh, I think in terms of like any sort of political commentator we have now, um, he, he's my favorite. I'll, I have tried to get him on the podcast. I'm going to continue to reach out to him because I so want to be here. I just think this book in particular, in terms of explaining the moment we're in, explaining this whole milieu, kind of setting us up, it just, uh, it, it's, it's eerie. It's prophetic. He talks about reality television. He talks about professional wrestling and how uh, wrestling began to sort of blur the lines of reality with these soap opera-like storylines that felt more and more real. And uh, his chapter on pornography there, best thing about pornography I've ever read. I mean, absolutely revelatory, hard to read, really difficult, uh, like tough, but powerful because he's not writing from a moralistic standpoint. But there really is, and there's... uh, (laughs) no pun intended here, a sense of how the sausage is made. And it's, I mean, kind of once you see that, you can't unsee it. Um, Still, a lot of times when people have conversations about porn culture and all that, I feel like a lot of it's framed in moralistic terms. And that's not what I'm here for. But I do think in terms of understanding what pornography and technology are doing to us, um, Hedges is the one who really captures all this. But I still think the great genius of that book overall if he mentions Donald Trump in the book by name, I don't recall it, but uh, it, it, it's like 
in retrospect, Trump's all over those pages. I think in terms of explaining the whole Trump phenomenon, it's uh, Hedge is better than anybody, I think, was able to see where we're going. Now, the book is bleak. It doesn't offer a lot of hope. But in terms of incisive analysis and, uh, again, not only understanding where we are now, but I think where we're still headed in a lot of ways, this book is just so blazingly prophetic. And I don't even mean that in like kind of a distinctly Christian way. I think he does have an MDiv, actually, but there's nothing, you know, his, his writing is not overtly theological, just in terms of kind of a sort of sociological commentary. Uh, I mean, it's 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 political. It's just, it's real life. I, I, it, I, there, there's so much going on with this book, but definitely Empire of Illusion has been tremendously influential. Number eight, number eight. Now, this is one I love to talk about that I find not many people um, have have read, and I'm always excited to um, to, to share this with people, uh, even though I know sometimes it's a little bit difficult to get a hold of sometimes. Uh, Herbert McCabe, he's been dead now. I think he died in 1996. But this brilliant Dominican priest, great preacher, really, really humble man. Uh, in fact, uh, since his death, there have been several books that have come out that where people who loved him found old sermons of his that literally were like stuffed in his shoes, stuff like that, and published uh, after his death, which I think is amazing. But Law, Love, Language is his, Law, Love, and Language is his book on ethics. And, um, you know, um, it was probably Stanley Hauerwas who first put me onto this book. In fact, I feel like as, as a person who is such a fan of Hauerwas, I think this book is a great way to understand Hauerwas. But, uh, you know, this book has been and continues to, 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 for me to just be utterly revolutionary. Um, I have my copy in front of me. It's highlighted to, to pieces. And it's tempting to just read a little bit to you some of my favorite quotes here. Now, the business of the church is to remember the future, not merely to remember that there is to be a future, but mysteriously to make the future really present. This is uniquely possible in the case of Christ because of his resurrection. He was expelled from the course of history by his rejection, his crucifixion, but his resurrection means that he remains present to history, though in a non-historical way. The articulation of this presence is the church. I mean that the church makes the presence of Christ articulate as a language, as an interpretation of the world, as a means of communication. Oh, so good. Uh, or gracious, I love this section. The Christian minister is meant to be neither the pillar of an established quasi-feudal order, as conservative Christians are inclined to think, nor is he the democratic representative of a quasi-bourgeois society, as the progressives seem to suggest. He is a revolutionary leader whose job is the subversion of the world through the preaching of the gospel. He exercises authority amongst his people, but not as maintaining an established structure. He is the leader of his people in a movement towards a new community. He is representative of his people, but not necessarily in the sense of being their elected spokesman. He may represent them in the way a revolutionary leader does, a way that is not obvious to them and only becomes clear when the revolution is achieved. 
I, I mean, these are all great sections. It's just a genius book. And on that note, by the way, that whole uh, speaking of subversion, another book I really, really love, Subversion, The Subversion of Christianity by Jacques Ellou. Uh, powerful, powerful book that also was hard not to put on my list. But McCabe, man, it's where it's at. And if you read that book, um, some of his other books that are like compilations of sermons, I mean, they're just, they're, they're all brilliant and wonderful and just a beautiful, beautiful soul. So Herb McCabe, highly recommended. Number seven, number seven, Frederick Buechner, you guys. Uh, Frederick Buechner is my favorite writer. He's still alive. I think he's 90-ish, maybe in his early 90s now. He doesn't uh, do much in public these days. But, I mean, you know, I'm such a student of Buechner's and everything about the trajectory of his life, the way that he kind of was able to move back and forth between writing these beautiful nonfiction books, collections of sermons, and uh, just these beautiful theological books. But, oh, the novels. I mean, his fiction is just breathtaking. And um, I I actually could, he's one of the few people, I collect first editions of Beecher books because they're that meaningful to me. And I, I love the fiction. I love the nonfiction. Because I didn't want to have two books on the list by the same author, I basically decided to, like, uh, I would allow myself a tie here. His novel, Godric, I think that came out in 1981, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. This uh, fictional tale of this very earthy 12th century saint. And the writing is elegant, but it's body and it's funny and there's dirt under the fingernails, and there's grit to it, and there's this uh, <laughs> kind of naughty sense of humor to it. That's Beekner for you, man. I mean, like these earthy saints. Um, that's that's what I love so much about him, is like these very grounded uh, characters who are holy but who are not pious, who are not sanctimonious in any way. And the character of Godric for me has been unforgettable. It's like what Buechner was able to do in this novel is kind of like what I'd want to be able to do if it's a complicated character. It's like, th- this is what I'd want to do with any art that I make, um, is, you know, to, to, to this kind of real life, very earthy, very raw, very real kind of faith. And maybe um, kind of on the flip side of that, my favorite nonfiction book of his, and I think in a sense these would be connected. He wrote a beautiful book called Telling the Truth, The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. And I feel like in some ways it's like that telling the truth from a nonfiction perspective, kind of gives you a, a just sort of a, a backdoor understanding of what's happening with with Beekner's, uh fiction, and I do love it when he writes explicitly about Jesus, and uh, but even that whole idea, gospel is tragedy, comedy, fairy tale. Oh, I mean, like uh, Beekner sort of made me fall in love with Jesus over and over again, and those words continue to haunt me. So either one of those, you guys. Godric, uh, I will tell you, because it, it's written in this Middle English style, uh, that is can be a barrier for some people. But if you read, just give yourself a few pages. If you get even 10, 15 pages in, there's a rhythm to it that you do get swept up in. And it, it, it works. It clicks. It carries you along. But you have to give it a minute because the rhythm is so different. Uh, but there is a cadence to it. And there is a beauty and a power to it. And again, this, 
and earthiness. But hey, if you want something a little more straight ahead and telling the truth, the gospel is tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale, I have wept over that book. I've highlighted that book to pieces. I've recommended it to so many people and given away copies. Uh, I might also write up there with um, The Preacher King probably would be my uh, right up there tied with my favorite book on preaching because it's also a beautiful, beautiful book about preaching. And, you know, again, if you kind of understand what makes me tick, there you go. Any of these Beekner books do that. His uh, series of Leo Bebb novels from the 70s, those are wonderful. I wrote a novel in 1987 called Brendan. It's all, all great. But Godric and Telling the Truth, those are foundational for me. Moving along, Martin. Number six, Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, the prophetic imagination. <sighs> you know, this is a book that's like so deep in my psyche. You know, I feel like it, uh, I, I, I don't even know how to kind of disentangle that anymore. It's so deep in me. Uh, and I love all of Brueggemann's work. It's like Brueggemann, you know, he was very influential to one of my mentors, a man named Dr. Ricky Moore, wonderful Old Testament professor. Many of you have heard me tell stories about him. But uh, Brueggemann and Ricky Moore are, are remind me of each other in this way. It's like Brueggemann has so studied the Hebrew prophets and so immersed himself in the language and culture of these Jewish prophets that uh, he, he, it's like he, he's become one of them. And the, the poetry of the language, the incisiveness of the critique, the way that he's able to name the forces of empire and how it is that the Christian story is able to resist empire, um, the way that he's able to take the text of the Old Testament in particular, and um, there, there's so much life and spirit in them, uh, the, the way that, that, Brueggemann, that Brueggemann situates them in our time. Uh, I mean, he's just genius. And again, he's, such a, he's, he's, he's a poet, he's a scholar, but prophetic imagination in terms of like how I see the world, how I want to see the world, how I want to see God at work in the world. Uh, this, you know, I, that was one of those books. I, I, <laughs> I remember when I read it, I highlighted so much of it that it felt stupid because like, what's the point in highlighting anymore when almost no words are not highlighted, but it was that profound to me. And it's a book that I, I have to regularly revisit because I think, you know, um, the world is so crazy. We kind of have to come out of the storm into that other kind of wildness of the prophet's point of view. And man, Brueggemann is like getting a, a, a blood transfusion of the prophets. And there are many Brueggemann books I love. I could rattle off five or six other ones that I adore. But if you've not read them before, The Prophetic Imagination is absolutely essential reading and certainly the place I would start. Number five. Now, this is number five on my list of top 10 most influential books. But if you just simply ask me for my favorite book, this might actually be number one. Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Of course, it won the Pulitzer Prize. Y'all, you know, I, I have no words for how beautiful this book is. It's uh, another one of those books I feel like I think about, you know, about once a day or something. John Ames, this aging preacher who knows he's not going to see his son 
grow up is writing these letters to his son to give him a sense of himself and his life and how he sees God in the world. And, oh, I mean, it's like the writing is so spectacular and it's just shimmering. And then, uh, but not only is it, is it beautiful, the, the theology, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I mean, what a, what a book. I, I still, it, it, I still love it so much. Like when there are a handful of novels, I feel like really powerful theology or philosophy, either one is actually best communicated by means of story. And maybe nothing for me illustrates that more clearly than Gilead. And yet it's such a lovely story and the characters are so fully drawn. I couldn't imagine a human with a pulse who would not love this book. Marilyn Robinson is interesting too, because she's such a card carrying genius. I remember going to hear her lecture for the first time a few years ago. Some of you might've read her books of collections of essays, which actually I find quite difficult to read. I mean, good, but she's challenging. And I just remember <laughs> being both inspired and discouraged at the same time because uh, her her writing in her novels, Gilead, and there's a sequel to Gilead that's also just beautiful called Home. Uh, my friend Stephen got me an autographed copy, and that's still one of my favorite books. Uh, it kind of has a place of honor out of my desk. And uh, but <laughs> books are friends, y'all. Books are my friends. Wherever my books are, that's where I feel home. But I remember what I was hearing her and thinking, her because her novels have such an ease. There's such an easy elegance to them, and it, the, it feels like the words just roll out, and it just feels so effortless. I remember actually being discouraged by just how brilliant she was. Cause I'm like, oh my goodness, like uh, this this effortless feeling like writing comes from a person with the mind of an actual rocket scientist. Because it's like, you know, she's just such a technician in terms of there's nothing she doesn't know about. There's nothing she's not educated in. I always say, too, because Marilyn Robinson actually is a Calvinist. And uh, and I make jokes about Calvin, uh, you know, Calvinist and Calvinism a lot, including and especially maybe to my Calvinist friends. And I always say, though, if there's anybody who could make me into a Calvinist, that would be Marilyn Robinson, because like she is the. She is the kind of reformed I could aspire to be. Her reading of Calvin really is quite inspired. And I don't know if I if I like Calvin quite as much as I do Marilyn Robinson's version or kind of transliteration of Calvin. But man, uh, she's the one person out there who potentially could make me into a Calvinist. Well, it's such a beautiful book. Like I say, this, if it was a favorite list, might, might be number one. So y'all really should check it out. You know, I was thinking... Maybe I should read just a short section to you from this book. And there's so many, there's so many things in it that are uh, gorgeous. I actually, this particular section was one that I included in my first book, Prototype, because even then, uh, this this book had already made such a, I don't know, just such a deep imprint on my life. Uh, it's in a section about baptism. I think it uh, it came alive for me for different reasons. Uh, one, because some of you heard me tell the story when I was a kid, I preached to my superhero action figures. So like, you know, um, Superman would come down and get saved. Uh, Aquaman got sanctified. Wonder Woman got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> I would lay hands on the action figures and they would fall out like the whole deal. <laughs> and so uh, maybe because of that, I was so 
I was so moved by this by this lovely section where the the character John Ames is talks about baptizing a litter of cats as a boy. Listen to this. They were dusty little barn cats just steady on their legs, the kind of waifish creatures that live their anonymous lives keeping the mice down with no interest in humans at all except to avoid them. But finding the kitten sociable enough, one of the neighborhood girls swaddled it in a doll's dress, and they went forward with the baptismal rite. So it goes on. I myself moistened their brows, repeating the full Trinitarian formula. So his Ames' own father was a minister. He eventually mustered the courage to ask him about it. So finally, I asked my father in the most offhand way imaginable, what exactly would happen to a cat if one were to say, baptize it? He replied that the sacraments must always be treated and regarded with the greatest respect. That wasn't really an answer to my question. We did respect the sacraments, but we thought the whole world of those cats. I love that line. Looking back on this experience years later, so he reflects, I still remember how those warm little brows felt under the palm of my hand. Everyone has petted a cat, but to touch one like that, with the pure intention of blessing it, it's a very different thing. It stays in the mind. For years, we would wonder what, from a cosmic viewpoint, we had done to them. It still seems to me to be a real question. There is a reality in blessing, which I take baptism to be, primarily. It doesn't enhance sacredness, but it acknowledges it, and there is power in that. I have felt it pass through me, so to speak, The sensation is of really knowing a creature. I mean, really feeling its mysterious life and your own mysterious life at the same time. That doesn't make you want to read this book, you guys. I don't know what will. Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Number four. A more explicitly theological book. And as we get uh, down to these last couple, I can kind of say... All these books changed my life and maybe in different ways kind of saved my life at the the point in time in which I read them. Pentecostal Spirituality, A Passion for the Kingdom by Stephen J. Land. I am holding one of my copies in my hands and it's, I mean, it's funny to look at because it's got so many markings and highlights and just reminds me. I I think I have two copies that are marked up about this much. And precisely because it's such an academic read, I don't know if this seems like a strange one to to, to include here, but here's the thing about Steve Lent's Pentecostal spirituality. I joke about being a hillbilly Pentecostal, but my roots are so deep within this particular tradition and there are many things about the way that I grew up that were wonderful. I have great stories um, about growing up around these kind of great saints in this very Southern ethos. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I have my knocks too, but I'm not scarred by my experience in general. I mean, it's made me who I am. But I will say this, for all the things I loved about the Pentecostal tradition as I experienced it, there were some ways in which it was lacking. It was very white. It uh, as kind of more rural southeastern Pentecostalism tends to be. The West said rural just then made me think of was that from um, uh, Thirty Rock? The rural juror. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, 
but there were some ways it was lacking. And when I read Pentecostal Spirituality, A Passion for the Kingdom, I got this broader vision of the Pentecostal movement that was much more inclined towards justice. And uh, it was a movement for and of the oppressed. And Land is talking about, and this is I'm reading about this for the first time, the nonviolent roots of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, the Pentecostal movement is a peacemaking movement. And then, um, see if I can come to this, uh, if I can turn to this easily, because uh, I think I would have this marked. I never will forget, like within the first few pages, I mean, he kind of says like offhandedly how the, uh, and this is not an exact quote because I didn't find it quickly, but how the the early Pentecostal strategy of, you know, nonviolence essentially is, um, clearly that what, what kind of what we need in a nuclear age and all this. Like, what? I mean, this was just not a, not a Pentecostalism quite that I knew. So I just think in terms of opening up to the global, diverse Pentecostal movement, one that was about justice, uh, this, 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 this radical racial conciliation, like all of that. It was a very different kind of Pentecost at a time when I didn't know if I fit within the tradition at all, if I should find a place within the tradition, all that seemed kind of up in the air. Didn't know what to do with my own roots and kind of didn't know what to do with my own story. And it's like I was able to find my place in it. I was able to find my place under the big tent of this big tent Pentecostal spirituality with with this particular book. And so I'm forever in debt in that way. And since that time, there have been so many other people within the tradition, kind of these radical Pentecostal types, this very earthy, embodied faith uh, that that were been part of this journey. But absolutely, Pentecostal spirituality, a passion for the kingdom, kind of helped save my faith at the time and certainly helped me find my place within a larger story in a way that I desperately needed. So that book is very, very important to me. And if you're curious at all about Pentecostalism, um, my, my, my mild critique of it, along with others, I mean, it can feel a little idealized, you know? I mean, it's it's a kind of an idyllic Pentecostalism in this book. Like, uh, sometimes I feel like I aspire to the kind of Pentecostalism that existed in Steve Land's mind when he wrote this book. And I do think it it is on the ground and third world, other places, et cetera. But I do think you'll, you see what I mean? Like, it just does it, it does it, it gl- maybe glosses over a little bit the complexity of the Pentecostal story, because even in any kind of radical church movement, you know, there's there's plenty of ugliness and pettiness too. But I still think his basic thesis that the first 10 years of the movement defined the center, not the periphery of it. And kind of, I think that thesis is fundamentally right. And I think there is just, there's a lot of treasure there. So there you go. Number three, Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. I am also trying to get Father Rohr on this podcast. You know, um, had the great honor of endorsing his book on the the Trinity a couple years ago. And uh, I remember a short conversation I had with him and finally getting to say something in person about what his life had, what his life means to me, what this book means to me. Like, I feel like when you say this book changed my life, or specifically we say this book saved my life, normally you mean that as kind of an expression. But reading Falling Upward when I did might have literally saved my life, you know, like actually saved my life. 
Uh, I read that when I was at my lowest point in 2014. I, I certainly think this is in the backdrop for all things that are shipwrecked. And you know, like Roar, he's he's such an he's such an interesting man. He's so tender. He's a good man. He's full of the spirit. I just think he. Uh, he's one of those people I've met that to be around him, you feel like something of what you imagine to be in the actual presence of Jesus. There's such a goodness to him. And, you know, uh, of his, he also is so prolific. I mean, he's written a lot of books that I think are good. And, you know, and, and maybe there are, I know there are other books that kind of capture some of these same themes, like psychological. I can tell you this, where it landed in me at the time, it was, I mean, it just... It, it just broke everything open for me. I think it up until that point, the Christianity as it existed in my mind, as much as I knew that Jesus was, you know, always about outcast, and I, I guess I was sort of familiar with something of the downward trajectory of the gospel, but I really don't think I grasped for myself that um, the, the way of the cross is a way of descent, and the, you know, I felt like I was losing my life and the way I was losing my life, I couldn't imagine that maybe this was something of what Jesus meant when he talks about losing your life to find it. But reading Falling Upwards, I got that, you know, that somehow in the midst of like this complete unraveling that maybe that might actually be my salvation, that it might be my saving. Because it is precisely as Roar talks about Falling Upwards, that kind of... T -t traumatic experience that opens us up to God, to be dependent on God, to be dependent on each other. It's that kind of experience that, um, I don't know. It, it, I think it's at the heart of what it is to be like born again. But at the time, you just feel like you're dying. At times you feel like you're, you're losing everything. And it's like, here I was, the exact same experience, all of a sudden given a whole new lens to to see that there was an invitation of the spirit and that what felt like a complete undoing that felt like it was just death and destruction was actually, man, that could actually be the, a portal into, uh, into a whole new kind of life, absolutely life saving, life changing. I recommend Richard Rohr's falling upward everywhere I go. Such an important and an essential book for me. Okay, moving on to number two. The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. You know, um, it's interesting how often this book in particular comes up with friends of mine who've been on any kind of a theological journey. I'm thinking about people like my friend Aaron Nequist or my friend Brian Zond. I can think of so many people for whom this book really was the leaping off point. And it's interesting because, and I don't say this as a slight at all, um, I feel like there are theology books that I love now where maybe like the prose is more beautiful or there's like this theopoetic, this kind of theopoetic stuff that might be a little sexy or something. But man, I'm telling you, I would not be who I am. And really the whole trajectory of my journey theologically would would not be what it is at all without reading this book. I, I picked up a copy of The Divine Conspiracy in my early 20s, maybe 22-ish, probably got there via Richard Foster, who's also influential to me, read his book, Celebration of Discipline. 
But when I read The Divine Conspiracy, it was like it opened up a whole another world to me. Here's this man, a Baptist man, philosopher, who writing about the kingdom of God, it's kind of wild and embarrassing to say now that probably up until my maybe mid-20s, I don't think I'd ever heard a sermon about the kingdom of God. I don't think I ever heard anybody really talk about it, which now that just seems so nuts to me because, I mean, this really is the central theme of the whole ministry of Jesus. He's always teaching, preaching about the kingdom of God. I mean, it is the central motif of everything that Jesus says and does is the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within your grasp. And yet I'd never heard the gospel of the kingdom. So something about the immediacy of the kingdom, the idea that it was possible to experience something of that reality, that good reign of God, that rule of God on earth as it is in heaven, that could be experienced where we are by submitting our lives to a certain set of practices. I mean, it revolutionized everything to me. The way he wrote about the Beatitudes, um, this, the Sermon on the Mount, I think in so many ways just seemed, you know, it just seemed so impractical to me. And now all of a sudden it was like the, the, the teachings of Jesus were just opened up and it was, the, the book is written with humility and grace and power. And for lack of a better word, there's this, I think there's just a spiritual authority to it. There's an authority to that message, uh, that I think, you know, knowing a lot of people who knew Dallas Willard, of course, he's been dead now for a few years. But I think that came from lived experience, and you felt that coming through the pages. I think, and Brian Zahn and I have talked about this a lot, it's interesting how Willard then became like the gateway drug for every other good theological book I read, that from him somehow that sent uh, sparked this curiosity to want to read the Church Fathers and reading this early patristic literature and uh, just all this kind of theology proper that came out of reading that book first. But it absolutely turned me inside out. The whole proclamation of the kingdom of God, and again, especially like his treatment of the Beatitudes in particular, I mean, I never, I never got over it. And I think even though I knew intuitively that this version of the gospel, as I'd heard it, wasn't right, I think it was with the divine conspiracy that it really, really clicked for me that the message of Jesus has nothing to do with going to heaven when you die, or at least little to do with that. And everything about the rule and reign of God breaking into the present and that it's real and that it's accessible and that there's a very different character, very different quality of life that can be lived where we are. Oh, I get stirred up just thinking about it now and Willard's beautiful articulation of these things. So that book, certainly, um, certainly one of the ones that smarted me forever. Ha! Well, you have borne with me for a long time, friends. Are you ready for number one? I feel like there should be a drum roll, some, something dramatic. Number one on my list. Boy, I agonized about this one. But I've got to go with The Grace in Dying by Catherine Dowling Singh. The Grace in Dying. You know, this is another one of those books that I would never be able to separate the content and my experience of the content from the time in which I read it. Um, the circumstances of getting this book were, I don't know, heavy and loaded. And it was when my, well, what I refer to as my shipwreck season. 
and kind of at the at the bottom of that that I was given and this the what this is still a sacred gift to me I'm given this book by a woman who is you know and and she died a couple years ago which made me so sad I mean uh, Kathleen Darling Singh PhD hospice worker who had walked with hundreds of people through the dying process and the wisdom that she gleaned from this process. I do find it kind of interesting now that uh, this is number one on the list and the only book I think on here that's that's uh, that's not by a Christian per se, because while she draws heavily from the teachings of Jesus and from Christian mystics, uh, she herself was a Buddhist. But it was like the, this this very integrated all my life i'm I'm reading about the experiences of um the kind of universal experience because this is the essential thesis of the book that if people have time to die if you don't die traumatically tragically if if there's a process of dying then the almost universal testimony no matter what someone's socioeconomic background is no matter what their faith background is no matter what part of the world they come from if you have time to die then whether it's a short window or a long window, people almost always testify to some kind of, I mean, the, the, the first there's, there, there's, there, there's the denial and there's the, all those stages of grief that are just agonizing. But almost everybody testifies to at least some window, shorter for some, longer for others, of profound freedom, this sense of liberation, that like after you kind of get past the humiliation of the body shutting down and having to be cared for, that there's just like this freedom this that comes. And her thesis is essentially that God hardwires grace into the dying process. So if the ego is not stripped any other way, then death will actually do it for you. And so there actually is grace in dying. Um, I read this when I felt like I was dying. I read this when I felt like um, my life was over. And to really glimpse this this idea, because it's not until maybe like midway through the book that she raises this, but I, you kind of feel it coming, that as she's giving us these lessons that she's learned from walking with so many people through dying, then it raised the question in a way like I'd never heard it before. You know, Jesus, again, talks about losing your life to find it. Is it possible to live with the qualities of the dying while you're still alive? Is it possible to live with the ego stripped in that way? Is it possible to entirely withdraw from those ego games and to live with that same kind of freedom and clarity that ordinarily people only get in their final days, final weeks, final moments? What a pursuit that is. And the the lessons that I've learned from this book, which I go back to over and over again, I mean, psychologically, it is the most profound book I've ever read. And I dare you to read it, read it and not be transformed somehow by it. Uh, I just, you know, some of the content may really challenge you, but oh, it's so transformational. You know, I'll tell you a, a side story about that, um, that I haven't had the opportunity to tell much, and it's still kind of mysterious to me. So I read this book, and I was so moved by it uh, that at the time I wrote a little blog. Maybe I put it on my own website. I'm, I know I put it on Medium, you know, on the website Medium on that platform, where I talked about the top 10 books I read, and I guess that would have been 2014. 
and it was the top one. And I wrote at length, and I was just gushing about it. And I think I was still kind of under the spell of the book in terms of having this clarity and perspective. And several months later, was it six months later, eight months later, something like that, I get an email from Catherine Dowling Singh herself where, and this is what she said, I'll never forget this. She said, you know, Jonathan, I stumbled onto your review of my book. And she said, I've read hundreds of reviews of the book. And her exact phrase was, because I'll never forget this, she said, yours was the only one where I where I sensed the same shimmering clarity. That was the phrase, shimmering clarity that I felt when I was writing it. And that moved me so much because, you know, the, I think the book had just been so deeply internalized. I was experiencing a shimmering clarity uh, because it was like I was coming to see. I mean, I, I lived so much of my life in denial of death. And, um, and how it seemed like what I was learning about death was ironically the means God was using to kind of bring me back to life. You know, the sad thing about that, that message from her meant everything to me. And so I told her a little bit about my story and I was writing Shipwreck and uh, I told her I was going to send her a copy. And she sent me uh, her home address in in Florida. And it's one of those like stupid things, you know, like I got kind of busy and when the book came out, I didn't send a copy Um early enough or quick enough. And then I find out a little bit later that she had passed away. Um, so there was certainly regret around that, but also just that couple emailed those exchanges. What a precious gift that that was. And something very sweet and something that somehow, I guess, kind of made me feel, feel seen and known by God in my own way that this person whose book was so transformational to me kind of running and say, Hey, you really, you really get this, and was moved by that, you know, because I know what it, on a small level, what it means when you know if my work impacts somebody in some way. So yeah, uh, in fact, I do feel like in a lot of ways, what I was doing with How to Survive a Shipwreck is kind of my own narrative way, maybe working out the lessons of this book, which are not, of course, like copyrighted or patented by this person. I think these are universal lessons of the dying, but you know, and that's where. I think a lot of the wisdom of the our great wisdom traditions, it's really all about dying. You know, nothing about <laughs> the teachings of Jesus and the whole way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. Keep in mind, it's not just, you know, uh, here's the cross that God did this for us so that we don't have to think about it, but take up your cross and follow me. I mean, it's a way of death. To coin a phrase from the poet Robert Bly, it's the path of ashes, grief, and descent. That's what the way of the cross is. And I think like coming to see that, uh, coming to see that there really is no way up except to go down and except to go through this excruciating process of having the ego stripped. And it feels like death at the time because you actually are dying. There is a party that's dying. And yet um, the kind of resurrection that's on the other side of that, the idea that on the other side of that, that we go back into love, um, utterly revolutionary. And that, my friends is my list of the top 10 most influential books I have read with a lot of footnotes, honorable mentions, and all of that. Tell you what, if you're listening to this podcast right now, I would love, love, love to know what books have influenced you in the same way. So please hit me up on social media. Let me know what your most influential books are. If you've read any of these, I would love to know 
what your experience has been of any of these titles, or again, just uh, stuff in a comparable way that's really altered your existence because you happen to sit down and read the right thing at the right time. Man, that's the testimony of Augustine, right? Uh, To hear a voice, take it up, read it, take it up, read it. And he reads the book of Romans just at the right time. And I just have these moments in my life where it's like there's a voice that says, take it up and read it. And I do. And all of a sudden something shifts. Maybe now while so many things are shutting down and you're shutting in, maybe the voice is directing you to take something up and read it. So, and if it's, if it's one of these books, I won't be mad about it, but if it's something else, find something that will nurture and speak to your soul, especially in a time where so much of what we're experiencing in the world is so, is so soul draining. So as always, you guys are in my prayers. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Thank you for my patrons uh, who make this possible. You guys are the best. You are heroes to me. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you, and I'm grateful for those of you who like, share, review, especially in this critical time, um, being able to continue to get this content out. Uh, man, it just it just means so much. So thank you for those of you who are partnering with me to do that. It is deeply appreciated, and thank you again for joining me for another edition of the Zeitcast.